0: Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. All March long, A Certain Age has been talking to guests about navigating life's speed bumps and profound challenges, because no one makes it to 50 without encountering turbulence. Today I'm joined by author and mental health advocate Terry Chaney, who brings sunlight and candor to a broad national conversation on mental illness, and more specifically, to her own bipolar disorder. Terry is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Manic, a Memoir. You may have watched Anne Hathaway bring Terry's New York Times essay about bipolar dating to life for the TV series Modern Love. She is active on numerous mental health boards and foundations, and her blog about mental health for psychology today has over a million downloads. Now she is back with a new book, Modern Madness, an Owner's Manual. Welcome, Terry.
1: Thank you for having me. Good morning,
0: Terry. We're going to be diving into your new book uh, during the show, but I would I would love to start with your first, manic. Uh, one reviewer said that it ripped the covers off your secret battle with bipolar disorder. What made you decide to you know tell this secret? What made you decide to write that book?
1: Well, it began when I was hospitalized for severe depression at UCLA and just nobody seemed to be getting better. None of the patients were, were improving. And I, I realized it's because they just don't have a way to talk about what's going on with them. They don't have a vocabulary for their illness and neither did I. So I just started researching like crazy and um, seven just started writing about my own experience with bipolar disorder and how it feels in my own body and seven years later, I emerged with a book. To my surprise,
0: and so you at the time were not a writer. You were not an author. Can you tell our listeners, you know, what you were doing for your job, and, and, and uh, share with us a little bit about why it might have been um, a challenge to let your your work community know about what was going on your with sure. your behind the scenes.
1: Well, I always considered I was a writer because what I wanted to be ever since I was a little girl never let go of that dream but I was an entertaining lawyer of all things representing clients like Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones and all the major motion picture studios so I had told no one about being bipolar um, not my friends my family my co-workers nobody knew so this Being hospitalized was a big deal to begin with, but uh, coming out as bipolar so publicly was really terrifying. And I remember the night before Manic came out, I almost called my agent and my editor and said, you know, can we, I made a mistake here. Can we just, you know, can we stop the presses? But I didn't. And I'm so glad I didn't
0: not only have you received like wonderful press and accolades and the book was such a bestseller, but it, 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 it's touched so many lives and, and really um, like I said at the open sort of brought sunshine to uh, a conversation that not a lot of people are, you know, willing or able to have, you know, what, what was the response from the people in your life once you shared your book?
1: It was truly amazing. I had expected, I, I, I knew that there was a certain universality to the message because I had um, gone over it with my writing group that I've been in for about twenty years. Um, so I knew that you know people could relate to my story, but I had no idea it would have the effect that it did. And I got messages from all over the world, people wanting to tell me their own stories, and the people that I knew were obviously quite surprised by my truth. But um, on the whole, I would say the, the reaction was really positive and very supportive. Um, there were, you know, maybe one or two nasty comments along the way, but it just was over, overwhelmingly a wonderful experience.
0: That's so, so beautiful that you were able to have that kind of positive response because it's so hard to be vulnerable In that way, what was sort of the hardest part of of sharing that story? Was there one particular, um, you know, moment or story or, you know, vulnerability that was really difficult to share?
1: Yes, I think the fact that I was arrested for driving under the influence of prescription medication and I was taken to the Van Nuys jail and I actually suffered a beating there. I was beaten by a police officer. And that's telling that story, you know, especially when you're a lawyer, um, that was really difficult. But I think it ended up being one of the best stories in the book. So I was very relieved to get it out of me. It became less traumatic after I wrote it.
0: I think that's so. Um, that's such a, a powerful, you know, devastating experience. But I think that so many people have the experience of having something in their life that feels like impossible to share, and that maybe if you share it, you'll be rejected, and that when you finally do, it, it, it loses some of its power. You know, was that part of your experience in writing this book? Did you did you feel like you? Um, because you, you talk a lot about in both that book and in your, your current book, Modern Madness, about sort of some of the shame that goes around, um, you know, experiencing what happens when you're having these episodes. D- did sharing them help minimize that shame? Do you feel better now?
1: I think the most important thing um, initially was writing them down. That became so healing for me because they didn't own me anymore. I owned them, you know, I owned those experiences. And in fact, that inspired me to call my uh, latest book, Modern Madness An Owner's Manual, because I think it's really important to own your, you know, everything about yourself, your, whether it's bipolar disorder and eating disorder or, you know, anxiety um, all your good and your bad before you can really heal.
0: That makes so much sense to me. So it, so why 12 years later was it time to write mo- Modern Madness? I mean, do you feel like what happened during those intervening 12 years? I know you became, you, you sort of moved away from law and you became very active in the, the mental health community. You, you, you're an advocate. You are, you know, you're making a difference on all these different boards and foundations. But, you know, why 12 years later was a time for Modern Madness?
1: Well, I wrote a book in the interim called The Dark Side of Innocence Growing Up Bipolar. And that was about my childhood Um, that came out uh, in 2012. And I just I had kept writing. Um, I don't think I'll ever stop writing now that I um, am no longer a lawyer because it really, as I said, is what I love doing. And it gives me great purpose in my life. So I just had kept writing. And, and again, as with Manic, I realized after a certain interval of time that I had all these stories. Um, and that it probably was another book. So I think the world was changing in that um, it was becoming somewhat more receptive to stories about mental illness and to talking about mental illness. So I didn't see COVID on the horizon when I wrote the book, but uh, coming out, having the book published or when COVID was rampant was really, um, you know, good for the book and good for me and the audience, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because that's that's been such a big part of our, you know, national conversation over the last Twelve months about COVID. It's just the um, sort of the mental health challenges that that this this you know epically horrendous period of time that we've been living through is sort of casting over such a wide swath of our you know population. I mean, do you? I know that you're you're active with uh, advocacy groups. You know, has that been part of your conversation? What what are you seeing? What is your perspective on some of the mental health challenges that are coming out of this particular moment in time?
1: Well, I, I know for one, one statistic that really shocked me was that uh, calls to, to suicide hotlines went up a thousand percent in the first few months of COVID. So, and I, you know, I think you just have to turn on the TV right now and you will see coverage of mental health issues during COVID. It's really for someone who, uh, never heard mental health talked about when I was you know, going through the worst of it. It's really been an amazing thing to see everyday stories on mental health and how people are surviving and coping. Um, I think it bodes well for the future. I'm hoping that because of what people have experienced during COVID, the anxiety, and for some people, the depression, that there will be a lot more empathy around mental illness. Um, once we come out of these dark times.
0: I, I think that you, you've hit, put your finger on it, that the, sort of that quality of empathy that we, that we're all forced to experience these sort of, I don't know, these sort of waves of the, particularly at the beginning, these waves of absolute fear, um, the lack of control, the the sense of that, you know, everything was like upside down basically. And, and when you know in reading your books those are some of the sometimes the words that you used you know to describe um some of what you're experiencing and um you know one of your chapters you 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 actually open uh modern madness with talking about a meeting with Michael Jackson you talk about how you've you know dressed for the occasion to um look professional but to also you know choose an outfit that's hiding um your you know the um marks on your wrist from a you know a suicide attempt and in your book you call suicide you know quote a lie masquerading as a promise uh can you tell us more about what you mean by that
1: i forgot that i said that that's an interesting phrase. i i
0: (laughs) I thought it was so um powerful like really like jumped off the the page to me and you know to me it sounds like it's just that you know there's this this Temptation to do something that you know ultimately is, um, you know, just um, such a deceptive lie. Your brain is is tricking you in some ways. Is that That's was that your way experience? Putting
1: it, um, your brain really is tricking you into thinking that this is the only possible solution to your problems. I think what a lot of people don't realize about suicide, um, you know, it's called a selfish act quite often, and you're not thinking at that point where you're contemplating suicide about anything or anyone else other than the pain. The pain is so uh, just devastating and omnipresent and feels like it will never go away. So there's just no comprehension of what your act might do to others. And that I don't consider that selfish. I consider that, um, you know, realistic. But suicide very often doesn't work. And I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but you know, you more often end up harming yourself badly uh, than ultimately um, getting any kind of relief. It People become very angry with you if you've attempted suicide. It's a very it is a very um, deceptive promise.
0: And and so if we have people in our lives that we're concerned about, if we're concerned about, you know, ourselves, what are, what are some recommendations, you know, other than reading your book or, you know, what has been helpful for you in, um not having sure. that be something that is part of your life today?
1: I think the most important thing I've learned, and it's become sort of a mission for me now, are five little words, tell me where it hurts. If you sit down with someone who's suffering, I mean, we're all quarantined right now, maybe with somebody who's not doing so well, or or um, we know someone who's struggling, rather than give advice, which is our, you know, basic human instinct is to try to fix it, particularly for men, no, no offense meant there, but that is the truth. Um, the important thing really is to sit down with the person and just say, tell me where it hurts and let them open up about the darkness inside them. And it amazingly helps it to dissipate. It's really been an extraordinary thing to watch the the magic of those five words and that act of listening and not trying to um, make it all go away, because it, it doesn't, it takes its time. And that again, we come back to empathy. It really it can be a very difficult thing to listen to people who are depressed or anxious, but it's an act of love. And it's 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 the most powerful weapon we have, I think.
0: That is so beautiful. And I, tell me where it hurts is something that i I feel like I need to incorporate that language into even like talking to my children about when they're experiencing things and just when you were when you were sharing about how important it is to be a good listener, I found myself like my inner voice was scolding myself for all the times that I've been like giving people advice, you know, when really what they wanted was an ear, you know, instead of an opinion. And I think um, that's challenging. And it's but it's so thank you for sharing how necessary it is, because I'm sure every single person that's listening right now, the next time they're presented with an opportunity to give advice might right. choose instead to to be the listener and have that make the difference.
1: Well, you know, it's a fun experiment. Um, I came across that those wonderful words when I was um, facilitating a mental health support group at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. I did that for about fifteen years, and I watched when people were trying to open up and they were given advice they just shut down because you feel like you're being judged or you can't do what the person is suggesting. I mean, you get all sorts of bizarre suggestions when you're mentally ill, you know, like the one that I hate the most is uh, exercise more, even though I know exercise is good. uh, (laughs) It it is the last thing in the world I feel like doing when I'm depressed and, or eat more blueberries, you know, clear your chakras. I've heard it all. (laughs) (laughs) People just shut down around advice, but it's fun to watch them open up when you really start to listen and you make that time and space, you know, to just sit down and listen.
0: Uh, The blueberry thing seems definitely (laughs) like, (laughs) I don't know, that's, that's, you know, that's definitely a little
1: bit out there. I do eat a lot of blueberries. I've heard it so much. I figured <laughs> you're like, all right,
0: I'll, I'll, you know, maybe I'll give that I'll, one a try. I'll, I'll take, try I'll take that piece I'll of advice. I'll try anything. <laughs> I'll try it all. You know, uh, Terry, your writing is so vivid and dynamic and and funny. You know, uh, at, you. at times, I mean, there's just like a, it's, it's so um, the thread of humor that runs through some things that are, that are just completely not, you know, humorous is so, um, it, it makes it so easy to read this book it's so vivid and you have one chapter titled the world's worst party guest which of course i was like i love parties i need to read this one and i read it and it's short it's a list it is astonishingly funny but it's obviously rooted in something so um you know painful why is it you know why did you choose why do you mind so much of the humor in 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 something that's challenging and upsetting and hard
1: well thank you that that is my favorite compliment about my writing. Um, people always apologize first though. They say, I'm really sorry to say this, but I laughed out loud and I just can't tell you as an author, there's, there's nothing better because um, you know, mental illness, particularly bipolar disorder can be so extreme that it becomes absurd. And, um, I think there is a lot of humor in suffering once you've had a certain amount of perspective. I think, what is that great quote? Um, uh, humor is tragedy plus time. Yes, I love that. Um, I think that was Mark Twain who said that. So I really do try to see the absurd in the situation. It helps me in life and it helps me in writing and that particular story that you mentioned about being the the world's worst overnight guest um, was one of my favorites in the book. So I'm really glad you enjoyed that.
0: I love I I absolutely loved it. And I had a guest on earlier um, in this month, and we've been exploring, um, you know, losses and challenges. And it was a woman by the name of Leslie uh, Gray Streeter, who wrote a book called Black Widow about unexpectedly losing her young husband to an aneurysm. And and having to muddle through with their then two-year-old. And the book is so heartbreaking and so hilarious. You know, it's just, you know, she with five years distance was able to open the book with coffin shopping and you're, it's like side splitting, (laughs) side splitting funny, but, but rooted in the worst moment of her life. And I think that, um, you know, that's, it's that's also sort of the three hundred and sixty way that we live our lives. Like there are there are highs and lows and joys and sadness, and it's all kind of like mixed up and muddled up together. Right. Um, you talk also in Modern Madness about sort of good and bad coping skills, uh, mm-hmm. and you have you know several chapters on each for people who are listening right now, because um, you know who maybe don't have bipolar disorder, but probably you know you know anxiety and depression are extremely common um and, and so p- if people are not experiencing it themselves they have loved ones friends family coworkers who are experiencing it can you share a little bit about sort of what you think of as g- sort of good coping skills and maybe bad coping skills and help us frame how we help ourselves and others
1: well i think bad coping skills are easiest to recognize for people because we all do it regardless of what we're going through in our lives and probably the Uh, ironically the number one bad coping skill I think is isolation and you know we've been in this enforced isolation for a year now so it really is not um, the healthiest way to to live your life it also lying is is another bad coping skill that I I used to use a lot. So good coping skills would be, um, when I say lying, I mean, like, you know, making up excuses for not being able to show up because I was depressed, you know, saying that I was um, physically sick or my car was broken or whatever, that just becomes a nightmare in itself. Um, So I think some of the good coping skills, um, Well, on the flip side, uh, the flip side of isolation, you know, is reaching out. There's just nothing more healing than reaching out to someone and getting an empathetic response back, as we've been talking about. Also, just trying the truth. Um, I've been amazed at how, what a relief that is, not to have to keep track of the lies in your head and just tell the truth about what's going on with you. And and people are surprisingly kind. Um, and I think they, they respect the fact that you've told them the truth, that you've honored them with the truth. So those are a few of the bad, good and bad coping skills that I talk about.
0: I think that one about the truth is so resonant because um, you know we all have um, – things in our lives that if once you sort of acknowledge and share with people, then you realize, Oh my God, other people are going through this too. You know, other people, you know, I just think back to some things that I was reluctant to talk about in my own life. Like when when one of my sons was like struggling to adjust to school, it felt like everyone else's kids are hopping off the bus. You know, when you finally tell people like, God, it's not going well, then you start to hear from other people that you're not alone. And it's just that sense of, um, Feeling connected to people that have a shared experience makes you feel less lonely and, you know, helps it helps you to get through that. One of your other chapters is called Never Be Fooled by a Smile. And that, you know, you're talking very specifically in that chapter about a good friend that you lost to suicide who was, you know, captured smiling a few days earlier in a photo but I thought it was such a great metaphor for like sort of these societal veneers that we put on like everyone everyone seems to be doing okay on Instagram <laughs> you know like sure. everything's everyone's lives look so shiny but that that's not true you know um do, have you now that you have shared these books you've written 3 books at this point you're very active you 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 know you you blog regularly for psychology today are you a magnet now for, Do people always confide and confess in you to you oh. about, or is it is that good do you feel do you feel knit to a community or do you sometimes feel overwhelmed by that
1: um I would say it's been a mixed blessing everybody does have their mental health story that they want to tell me and I was initially just overwhelmed by it I think I went through a little bit of compassion fatigue sure. if that's um, the right term um i had to develop a certain amount of distance from from readers not not in a cruel way but just realizing that i couldn't um uh, solve every problem and and you know it was important for people to express what was going on with them but it wasn't necessarily my responsibility to fix it as we talked about earlier so yeah it it it's been both positive and negative, but I think something that is really interesting that's going on right now during COVID is people aren't just saying, how are you anymore? They're saying, how are you really? Yes. And I think it's, it's been an extraordinary thing to watch. Um, I'm sure that's happened to you as well. People really seem to want to know how I'm doing. I, I don't know if they're just concerned about me because of my mental health, but I notice I'm doing that to others as well. How are you really doing? How are you coping? You know, what's going on? And again, I'm hoping that's something that outlasts COVID because that would be great just to know that we can really not just say fine and walk away. Um, what a what a joyous What a joyous uh, outcome that would be.
0: I think that that is not going away. I completely agree. There is this um, sort of collective humanity that people are experiencing. I was just on a a work call yesterday. There were five of us on the call. The woman kind of running the show said, let's all start by um, with a kind of a quick opener. You know, how are you feeling really? And what was something that you bought recently? You know, just, you know, one (laughs) kind of a deeper question, one silly And one of the women on the call said, I'm feeling stress evaded. And she said, and I had to make that word up to capture how I'm feeling, which is I'm deeply stressed out, but I'm activated and wanting to manage it. And it was like so hilarious. I was like, oh, my God, I'm stress evaded also, you know? And it was great because we all went around and somebody was feeling very sunshiny because the weather was good and another person was overwhelmed. But everyone said their thing and then everyone quickly shared what they bought and we moved on. But it really... I just felt more deeply connected to the women on this call than I did, you know, five minutes earlier when we were all like, you know, hello, 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 you know, so I don't think that's going anywhere. People, I hope not, people want to share what they're up to and how they're feeling. And that, that's going to be the, maybe one of the silver linings from this pandemic is just that empathy and, and more honesty, more honesty.
1: Curiosity too about you know how really are people coping because you learn a lot from other
0: stories. So, I so agree. I so agree. I'm I'm curious actually, Terry, because you have been writing these books for you know 12 years, and I'm wondering um, over that period of time ha- has has aging because this show is really about talking about becoming older, um, living vibrant lives, what women 50 plus are up to uh, in ways that maybe are not reflected in, uh, sort of larger culture. And I'm just curious about how, 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 if aging has impacted your, uh, mental health management or has it had no role on it? Like,
1: I think it's impacted it a lot. Um, I was just turning 50, um, after Manic came out. So it was a very good time in my life, but I was very worried about aging. I I live in Southern California. It's, you know, it's something you take seriously here. And I had a friend who was turning 50 around the same time and she threw herself a party and I decided that was the smartest thing I have ever seen. So I threw myself this enormous party, invited everybody that I knew. and it just was sort of like launching my middle age in the most wonderful way. And uh, I found that I had been told by a doctor that mental illness gets easier as you get older. I didn't, I should have asked him, you know, like exactly when. (laughs) You're like, um,
0: tell me what age this is all going to be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't, but, it turns out to be true, at least for me. Um, I've had a, I've been much more stable. I don't have the mood swings, the extreme mood swings that I used to. I haven't been suicidal in quite a long time. Um, So I think part of it is not being as ashamed as I was when I was younger and not caring quite as much what people think. That always was something I heard from older people that you just, you just don't care anymore. And I couldn't imagine that being true for me, because I've always cared a great deal what people think. But when you step out of those shadows, you know, into the light, and and you stop being so secretive about your life, um, great things happen. And I think, I think you build that courage with the years, Um, it takes some living to be able to you know, realize I'm okay, and I'm just fine the way I am. So really, it doesn't matter that much what people do think.
0: I love that. Oh, my gosh, we are gonna wrap up on that note, because I that's just the perfect way to, to end um, this show. It's so I think it's so beautiful. And so true. And I, I, I experienced that in my own life. and And I've been hearing that from my guests that there's just oh. this confidence that people have in themselves and this sense of, um, I don't know, just like, like you said, like I'm just, you're you, you you're no longer secretive. You're able to be more yourself. And I, I find that to be so true of all of my guests. They talk about midlife as this sort of accelerant, the sense of belonging. Leslie Gray Streeter, I mentioned before when I said, you know, tell me your take on aging. And she said, I feel more myself. And yeah. I, I thought that was such yeah. a w- wonderful way of capturing how... You know, I feel I I feel more myself. I feel like at different phases in my life, I would go through, I would have to be like professional work, Katie, and I'd have to be mom, Katie, and I had different groups of friends. And now I just feel like Katie, you know, and I I just bring myself wherever I go. Um, So I, well, I, I think it comes back to that ownership issue. You
1: really do start to own yourself after you've been around yourself for a long time
0: amazing amazing terry where is there anything that you can recommend to our listeners before we wrap up a resource or a a tool or a book if they want to learn more about mental health or if they want to ask themselves questions for themselves or their family or friends
1: well i i truly think in modern madness that i that i opened up to families and friends of loved ones with mental illness. And that was something new in that book. So I highly, I highly recommend the book. I think there's a lot of, of good information in there, but there's also the national Alliance of for mental illness, NAMI.org, which is an extraordinary organization for people who are trying to find out more about mental health, or if they have a loved one or they're mentally ill themselves, they are, free online support groups. It's just terrific. So that's
0: NAMI.org. Fantastic. I'm going to put that into the show notes. And finally, right. how can our listeners uh, keep following you and your work and your writing and, and learn about your books? Well,
1: my website is under construction at the moment, but when it's, when it's up and running, <clears throat> it's my name, Terry Chaney, T-E-R-R-I-C-H-E-N-E-Y.com. And you can also follow me on Facebook. I'm at Terry Cheney author. Or I have a a fabulous blog that I'm so proud of for Psychology Today. It has over a million readers and it's just uh, a joy to write. So they can also go to Amazon to buy my books. That's always a good place to go. Or your independent bookseller and ask them to order a copy.
0: I love it. All of those are going into the show notes. Terry, thank you so much for being with me today. I, I have so enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you, Katie. I have too. It's really been fun.
0: Join me next week when we kick off April. All month long, we're talking out loud about topics that don't get enough airtime. We'll cover bladder health and why you're afraid to sneeze, midlife hair and going gray, and a host of other only-in-midlife moments. If you enjoyed this week's show, please head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to review the show. Reviews help us grow. So if you do take a minute to write a quick review, I have some fun A Certain Age swag I wanna send you. Write a review, let me know, and I'll mail you two A Certain Age laptop stickers with our taglines, Age Boldly Beauties and Age Out Loud. Yes, you heard that correctly. You'll get actual physical mail. How fun is that? Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time, and until then, age boldly, beauties.